Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is titled Prime. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. In 2005, the online mega retailer Amazon introduced a new subscription service called Amazon Prime. For $79 a year, Amazon promised to provide subscribers with free two-day shipping on just one million products and early access to special deals and sales. Amazon didn't promote the program very much in its early years, so there were just a few thousand members that joined in 2005. However, this all changed in more recent years, about five to six years ago, as Amazon began to also offer to their Prime subscribers streaming music and video content. And they expanded the two-day shipping uh, option to 20 million items and continued to add warehouses to their vast shipping network. The annual fee has since been adjusted for inflation from $79 to $99, to now $119. But one of the many reasons I think this service is so popular, and it has close to 100 million subscribers globally, including the Knack family, but one of the reasons I think it's so popular is that through this subscription service, Amazon Prime, Amazon is indirectly saying to its customers this. If you will pay this subscription fee, We will put you first. Your order will go out before everybody else's who just pays regular shipping or elects the free shipping, and you will get the best deals before everyone else, and you will get access to digital digital content that nobody else does. So you get to be first. Sounds like a good deal, and of course 100 million people think it is, In fact, it's so good that, as I said, the Mac family has been a part of Amazon Prime and takes good advantage of it, but I'd like to suggest there's a better deal out there to be had than Amazon Prime. And it's this. If the Lord Jesus Christ is your Savior, this was made possible because he purchased you from the bondage of your sin with the currency of his blood. And with this purchase and our surrender to him, we receive the following benefits, not limited to, but including forgiveness, eternal life, peace with God, and access to him through prayer, among other things. And all Jesus asks in return from us is that we put him first. That's what the book of Colossians is about. So we're kicking off a new series today in the book of Colossians that I'm calling Prime. I'd like to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Colossians chapter 1. And if you forgot your Bible and need to borrow one from us, just raise your hand and one of our ushers will bring one to you. Colossians chapter 1. I also want to encourage you to pull out the sermon notes that are in your worship folder so that you can follow along with me. And as you turn there, I'm going to give you just a brief background on the book of Colossians. When we study God's Word, it's important that we study it in context, 
that we understand who's writing it, why he's writing it, and who he's writing to. And so uh, with that, uh, many of you probably know that Colossians was written by the Apostle Paul, and it was written around 60 to 62 A.D., uh, during Paul's first imprisonment in Rome. Uh, during this two-year incarceration, Paul also wrote three other letters that you probably have heard of. Ephesians, Philippians, and Philemon. Now, Colossians was written to the church in the city of Colossae. It was delivered by a man named Tychius, whose name we'll see throughout this series a couple of times. Tychius delivered both the letter to the Ephesians and the letter to the Colossians for the Apostle Paul. They were written about the same time. Now, the city of Colossae is about 100 miles east of Ephesus. So if you can just imagine in your mind, if you're Tychius, you get these two letters from Paul, and you start heading eastward from Rome. You stop off in uh, Ephesus, drop off the first letter, and then you continue on further east into Asia Minor to Colossae. Interestingly, Paul had never been to Colossae before. It's a little bit of Bible trivia for you in case you want to impress anybody at a party. Hey, did you know Paul never went to Colossae? He didn't even start the church there. So he didn't plant it there. Instead, he led a man to faith in Christ named Epaphras, whose name we also will see in this series. And Epaphras, uh, he, he led, Paul led Epaphras to faith in Christ while being in Ephesus for three years preaching the gospel. Epaphras went over to Colossae and helped plant that church. So Pastor Epaphras traveled to Rome to visit Paul and gave him an update on how the church in Colossae was doing. And as is common with most churches, Epaphras told Paul some of the things that were going well, and he mentioned some significant concerns. This was the impetus for the letter we call Colossians. And so, Paul's purpose in writing the letter is, I boil it down to three E's, uh, there might be more, but I think these are the biggest three. First of all, he was writing because he wanted to expel false teaching from the church. That's going to come up in chapter 2 in a couple of weeks, but false teaching was invading the church, and it was damaging the work of the true gospel. And so Paul has some very strong words for false teachers and some strong warnings for the believers in Colossae who were starting to buy into the false teaching. Next, he wanted to encourage spiritual maturity. The apostle didn't want the Colossians to become stagnant or complacent in their walk with the Lord. And then he also wanted to entreat their prayers. In chapter 4, while in prison, Paul asks for the believers in Colossae to pray for him. Uh, he was concerned for all the churches that he had helped plant as though they were his own children. He longed to see the Lord use his imprisonment to further spread the gospel. So, uh, he wanted to expel false teaching. He wanted to encourage spiritual maturity and then entreat their prayers. Now, next, uh, some, some key words. As sort of as my custom, I like to share key words that help us understand the major themes of the book. Bible scholars often do this because if you can identify words that are repeated often, 
or words that are unique to the book or words that have a lot of weight in a book of the Bible, it often unlocks what the major themes are that the author was trying to get across. And so uh, there are three key words. Uh, first, the first one is head. Paul only uses it three times in most English translations. It only shows up three times uh, in Colossians, but it's still significant because of where he uses the word and the weight that he gives to it. The word head comes from the Greek word kephale, which means to have authority over. Uh, nearly every time it's used in the scriptures, it refers to someone of rank or authority. Uh, the word also conveys leadership because sometimes kephale was used in the scriptures to describe the physical head of a body or an animal. And so, uh, just as our bodies submit to our heads, where our head decides to go, our body goes, uh, Paul will remind us in this letter that we should submit to Christ's authority as the head of the church. Next, uh, the second key word is the word Lord. Lord comes from the Greek word kurios, which means master, owner, or ruler. It's derived from the root word kuros, which means supreme. This is another key word in the theme of Colossians because it's a title of authority, and Paul uses the word Lord 12 times. And that word is used 748 times in the New Testament to describe Jesus as someone who owns those he died for and has decision-making power over them. So, head, Lord, and next, Christ. The third key word is Christ. Now, it, it may be somewhat surprising, or perhaps you're wondering, well, it is a Christian Bible, and, you know, Paul's writing about Jesus. Why is, why is Christ a key word? Well, um, the word Christ that he uses in Colossians comes from uh, Christos, which means anointed one or Messiah. Now, the Apostle Paul uses the word Christos 26 times. While that comes as no surprise in a letter written by Paul, it is, however, worth mentioning that this 26 times takes place in just four short chapters. He uses Christ more times than he does in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, and Titus. And he uses the word Christ more than the author of Hebrews did. That's 13, 14 chapters right there. More than James, more than 1st and 2nd Peter, more than 1st through 3rd John, and Revelation used the word Christ. So obviously some of these latter books are about the same length, while others are longer than Colossians is. So, head, Lord, Christ, three key words. Here is the key verse. Our theme verse for this series is Colossians 1.18. I want to encourage you to underline it in your Bible. I did mine, and I wrote in the margin, key verse in caps, so I would always see it when I opened up the Colossians. The, the key verse is... Um, 
Again, I think, I think it ties together everything that Paul's trying to get across. And I'm going to slowly unpack this key verse over the next few weeks. But let's read it out loud together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now, I realize this verse uses some lofty language, but I'll unpack it, as I said, a little more next week and in the weeks to come. For now, you just need to know that Colossians 1.18 is why I decided to call this series Prime. And it wasn't Amazon Prime that inspired the title, by the way. Jesus first is the predominant message in the book of Colossians. Prime is an adjective that means to be first in authority, importance, rank, or significance. The Apostle Paul is going to tell us, both directly and indirectly, over the next few weeks in this book, that putting Jesus anything less than first in our lives is putting him last. He will also tell us that if we will put Jesus first in every area of our lives, there will be many benefits. Now, one area that it's easy to put Jesus in the back seat that we often don't think about is in our prayer life. And so, our big idea for today is this. The primary purpose of prayer is to get ourselves and others closer to Jesus. The primary purpose of prayer is to get ourselves and others closer to Jesus. Did you know that it is possible to pray to Jesus in Jesus' name but not have Jesus as your primary goal in prayer? Almost sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? Because we could argue that, well, the whole reason I'm praying in the first place is because Jesus and what he did and because he exists. But because of our inherited sin nature, we are prone to distort even things like prayer where we pray for things that Jesus wouldn't want us to pray for and we invoke his name to try and get him to do things that he doesn't want to do. Paul records a handful of prayers in his letters to the various churches like Colossians and Ephesians and Philippians. And these prayers that he records provide an example on how we should pray and what we should pray for. The remainder of our time together, it's my prayer that we'll see how our prayers need to start looking more like Paul's. Because when you pray for things that Jesus wants, you're more likely to see answers to prayer. And so with that, if you would look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 with me, Paul introduces himself to this church that doesn't know him yet. They've heard of him. So he says, Paul, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. Here's the first thing that Paul tells us uh, how he's praying for the Colossians. The first thing that we need to do. And I'm calling it Jesus first praying. So, so when Jesus is the goal of our prayers, here's four things that we should be praying for. And these are not the only four, but these are the four that are here in this passage. So Jesus first praying, number one, increases our hope of heaven. Jesus first praying increases our hope of heaven. There's an interesting turn of phrase that Paul uses here that's unique to this letter. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. The various English translations we have today have struggled a bit to render what's in the Greek text. And it's because it's difficult to sort of describe what Paul is saying in Greek and then to put it into English. That's a common problem in English, or Greek to English translations. But as I said, it's because in part, also because he says something here that he's not said anywhere else. Something that Bible interpreters often do is when they see a phrase uh, in the original language, they will often look to see, well, where else does this phrase or this word show up? And they'll, they'll use the meanings in other places throughout the Bible to help interpret what it means here. And so it's a little challenging when something like this phrase, the hope laid up for you in heaven, is not used anywhere else in the Bible. It means... This is the only place we have to work with to try and understand what he means. Now, having said that, in essence, the apostle is saying that the hope the Colossians had in heaven made it possible for them to keep the faith and love other believers. That's basically what he's saying. Uh, the Net Bible, for example, renders it your faith and love have arisen from the hope laid up for you in heaven. The NIV, some of you have that translation, says the faith and love that spring from. Uh, the New Living Translation says your faith and your love which come from the hope. So you can see how they are trying to describe hope as the originator of faith and love. Now, the Greek word that Paul uses for laid up is bursting with meaning. It means to lay away or to store up for future use. Paul used the same word in 1 Timothy 6.19 when he instructed the wealthy to be generous and to store up treasure in heaven. You know, as a kid, when I was a kid growing up in central Illinois, my mother sometimes would put a large Christmas gift or a big family Christmas gift on layaway at the department store. I don't think layaway is as common today as it was back then when I was growing up, but for those of you that were born after the heyday of layaway, 
And I didn't mean for that to, to rhyme, I didn't know else to say it, but it basically worked like this. Um, at the beginning of, or just before the Christmas season, you could go to certain stores and pick out a very popular, the hot gift for that year, and uh, you could ask the store to hold on to it for you until you were able to pay for its full value. Uh, this was typically 30 to 90 days. Customers usually would make a partial down payment and then make periodic payments over the course of that 30 to 90 days over the next few weeks until it was fully paid for. Or they would come in and they would pay it off completely and then take the gift home. Layaway plans allowed customers to sort of reserve the season's most popular gift so that it wouldn't sell out on them. And it allowed stores to make a little extra money too. For families that used layaway during the holiday season, there was an even greater anticipation for Christmas Day because unwrapping a gift that had been put on layaway and had been paid for over the course of time was the fruition of weeks of waiting and lots of payments. I think Paul is saying he prayed for the Colossians' hope because hope was their layaway plan for something they'd been promised that just hadn't been received yet. Philippians 3.20 says that our citizenship is in heaven, but we're obviously not there yet. This is called by some theologians the already not yet tension. It means the promise of heaven is so certain for Christ followers, that it's like we're already there, but the fact that the Lord hasn't called us home is a reminder that we're not there yet. Now, the biggest difference between a department store layaway plan and your eternal layaway plan is that Christ has already paid for it in full. And it's a good spot for an amen if you're still paying attention, if you're still awake. Now, the Colossians were under attack from various false teachers that were causing them to worry about whether Jesus was enough to meet their spiritual needs. And we, too, sometimes need to be reminded of the end goal, don't we? There are times that we get discouraged in the faith. Life here gets hard, and we realize we're, we're not there yet. I want to be there already. Why do I still have to be here? But this is why when we pray for other believers, we should pray like Paul did. And here's your first application. Pray for their hope. You see, if I could be just frank this morning with you, one of the, the many, 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 many tools that the adversary uses, since he realizes there are just some people he can't stop from praying, one of the things I think he does then is, go, okay, well, if I can't get you to stop praying, here's what I'll do. I'll just sort of redirect your prayers to things that don't matter as much in light of eternity. So instead, I'm going to influence you to pray for your brother or sister in Christ or relatives' comfort and temporal things. But just don't pray for their hope because I want them to lose their hope. Because if I can get them to lose their hope, they'll throw in the towel on their faith. So, pray for their hope. 
Paul was thinking Jesus first and the hope of heaven. They need to be reminded of that. Now, I want to make sure I'm clear on this. The text says the hope laid up in heaven. So that means we, we shouldn't pray for their hope that their present circumstances would just get better. But more importantly, we should pray for the hope laid up for them in heaven. That they would be reminded that this world is not their home. And not the hope of a heaven that has their favorite sport, dessert, free beer, a hobby they like, or whatever unlimited pleasure. I'm ashamed to admit that earlier in my walk with the Lord, I made jokes like a lot of unbelievers. Oh yeah, man, in heaven there's going to be like unlimited this and mulligans and so on and so forth. And My golf game will be perfect. My jump shot will be great. But then as I studied the scriptures more, I realized I need to stop saying that stuff because it's not my heaven. That'd be like me coming to your house trying to redecorate it to make it like I want it to look. It's Jesus' heaven. And the other thing that I realized I was missing is that, well, the whole point of heaven is that Jesus is there. It's not that all the things I want are there. Well, in fact, let me just let John Piper say this, because he says it better than I do. Uh, John Piper said this, Christ did not die to forgive sinners who go on treasuring anything above seeing and savoring God. And people who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there will not be there. So the only thing that makes heaven, heaven, is the fact that Jesus will be there and my sin will not. And that's great. And if you're not there yet, man, I would I just plead with you to get there. Get in God's word and get that right. Adjust your expectations. So we need to pray for their hope, not just their healing or their comfort. Because the primary purpose of prayer is to get ourselves and others closer to Jesus. Next, if you would look back at the text in verse 6, Paul says uh, at the end of verse 5 of this, you have heard before in the word, the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it is also it does in you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Here's the second thing that Paul prays for, and that is he prays that their their witness would be broadened for the gospel. So Jesus' first praying broadens our witness for the gospel. Jesus' first praying broadens our witness for the gospel. So, so what is the gospel? Well, it's the fact that Christ died for sinners so that anyone who receives him uh, by grace alone, through repentance and faith alone, they can have forgiveness and peace and eternal life with him. Paul says this gospel is not only changing lives in Colossae, but it's also doing so all over the world. 
I think he prayed for the broadening of the Colossians' witness because it's God's will that the gospel bear more fruit, and since it's God's will that it bear fruit through us, we should pray for that too. In the 20th century, there was a woman of God named Evelyn Christensen who was a popular author and evangelical speaker. She wrote several books for women, spoke at women's conferences, and one of her best-known quotes uh, is one that haunted me when I first saw it several years ago, and it still haunts me to this day. Um, And since it's haunting and convicting me, guess what? It needs to haunt and convict you now. That's how it typically works. I read something and go, ooh, ow, oh, man, this would be great to put in the message. So so, uh, having said that, Christensen said this, I often wonder why we spend so much time in our church prayer meetings praying for sick Christians who, if they die, and they will eventually, they go to be with Jesus. But we spend almost no time praying for sinners who, when they die, will go to a Christless eternity. What do we do with that? Well, here's your next application. When we, when we pray for other believers, I think we should pray for their gospel witness. Here's what, because I'm so afraid of being misunderstood here, I don't want you leaving today going, man, he is so against praying for healing and comfort and encouragement. What kind of church is this? No, 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 no. What I'm saying, I'm trying to be as clear as I can. Instead of only praying for somebody's encouragement and comfort when they're sick, discouraged, struggling, that they would be healed, encouraged, and comforted, we should also be praying that God would use their sickness and their discouragement and struggles to bring others to faith in Christ. See, in a few weeks, we'll see in chapter 4 that when Paul asked the Colossians to pray for him, he didn't ask them to pray he'd get out of prison. Blows my mind every time I look at Colossians 4, because that's what I would have been praying. Please pray I get out of here. I miss my bed. I miss my own shower, my own toilet. This is horrible. Why has God had me here? No, Paul says, pray that I might have an open door, an opportunity to share the gospel where I'm at, in prison. This is why when I visit and pray for church members who are in the hospital, I not only pray for their healing and the surgery, but I also pray they'd have opportunities to share the gospel with the nurses and the doctors and maybe a patient next to them in the hospital room. It's because of God's sovereign, and we believe he is, that means he has them there for a reason, and he just may have them there so they can proclaim the good news. Yeah, but that's uncomfortable, Pastor Kerry. Can't we just pray for their comfort and healing? That's safer. Yeah, but it doesn't make as much an impact on eternity. This is why when I pray for an unemployed church member to get a job, I also pray they'd land somewhere where they can make the biggest impact for the kingdom, where they can lead others to faith in Christ. 
because the Lord gives assignments out to believers like they are soldiers watching on a wall. And he just may have one believer unemployed for now because he's getting them ready to redeploy them over here in this state, in this town, working for that company because he wants somebody to be a light for Christ there. So we should pray for their gospel witness. In addition to praying the Lord would encourage and heal and strengthen them. Because the primary purpose of prayer is to get ourselves and others closer to Jesus, even those that are far from Jesus. In other words, Jesus first praying focuses on getting people to Jesus instead of getting what we want from Jesus. It's a radical shift in goals, isn't it? So Paul, Paul says, Jesus first praying broadens our witness for the gospel. Thus we should pray for their gospel witness. Next, look at the text again, verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Here's the third thing that Paul prays for. Jesus' first praying deepens our walk with Christ. Jesus' first praying deepens our walk with Christ. He says that you would be filled, I pray that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will. To fill something is to supply a receptacle with what it needs so it is no longer empty but instead full. In fact, the Greek text literally reads here in verse 9, filled to the full. In this case, What's the empty receptacle that needs filling? Point to it. Me. And you. And what do we need to be filled with? A knowledge of his will. Well, Paul, how do we, how do we learn what God's will is for us? Well, he answers the question, verse 9. In all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Well, how do we gain wisdom and understanding, Paul? Well, that the Holy Spirit gives it to us as we study and pray over God's words. One of the reasons why it's very important to be in a small group. It's another reason why it's very important to be in, in the Lord, in the Word, excuse me, in the morning, Monday through Friday at least, and spending time with Him, because as you do that, you, the Spirit helps you gain discernment and begin to gain the mind of Christ, understanding what His will is for you, and it helps you improve in your decision-making. Understanding, of course, is self-explanatory. That's something that Jesus said the Spirit would do when he promised the Spirit would come, that the Spirit would guide us into all truth and help us understand the truth. Wisdom, though, spiritual wisdom, as he uses the phrase, as we learned last summer in Proverbs, it's the skillful application of God's Word. Commentator Doug Moo, uh, he 
He's a popular uh, Bible scholar and wrote a great commentary in the book of Colossians that I'm using as a guide in this series. Uh, uh, Dr. Doug Moo says, the connection between spiritual wisdom and understanding works like this. The combination, quote, suggests the ability to discern the truth and to make good decisions based on the truth. So it's studying the word with the Spirit's help, internalizing it so much that it changes the way we think so then we can make decisions in our everyday lives based on what we've studied in the word. Okay, Paul. Why do we need to gain spiritual wisdom and understanding? Well, he tells us that next. So that we can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Fully pleasing to him. Thus, we can, we can sort of conclude the inverse. If I don't spend time in God's word, I will not gain spiritual wisdom and understanding, and I will not be able to then walk in a manner worthy of the, worthy of the Lord and be able to please him. So in essence, Paul is praying for their spiritual growth in a deepening, deepening walk with Christ. So what's the application? Well, when we pray for other believers, we should pray for their spiritual growth. When praying for each other, we should not only be praying for grace and strength and wisdom, but also for spiritual growth. Why? Because it enables us to live a life pleasing to him. And because one of the many reasons the Lord allows or causes difficulties to enter our lives is so that we would walk more closely with Him. I haven't met anybody yet. Maybe they're out there, but if you know anybody, let me know. But I have not yet, in 20 years of full-time ministry, met anybody that got closer to the Lord because their life was easy and comfortable. I, just don't, I, haven't, I have no examples of that. But... I do know several people, and the scriptures testify that suffering and trials and hard times have a way of getting us closer to Jesus. The psalmist testified to that in Psalm 119. He writes, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Then he says in verse 71, it was good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. In other words, hey, man, when life was good, I wasn't walking as close to you, Lord. But after I went through that really rough season, man, I was in my, you know, on my face in the Word, and I learned Scripture verses I never thought I'd learned before. Therefore, when I pray for someone in the hospital or that's unemployed or loses a loved one, I will not only pray for them to be encouraged, but also I will pray that they get closer to the Lord as a result of their suffering. I, I've prayed for a number of people in hospitals before that in that solitude time that they have where they're staring at the ceiling and they're tired of watching daytime talk shows on the three channels that the hospital offers on TV and that the Lord would just speak to them about things he wants to show them and do in their lives. It's, hospitals have an interesting way of providing solitude that we wouldn't normally seek out. 
or I've counseled and encouraged unemployed uh, believers before, man, ramp up your time in the Word. Now you have no excuse not to get up in the morning and spend time with you. You can't say, I've got to be at work too early. Get into the Word and make this a season where you just like accelerate your spiritual growth. Grow leaps and bounds, man. Why, why would you do that, Carrie? That's so insensitive. Because it would be a waste if our suffering, if we go through a season of suffering and we're no closer to the Lord Jesus Christ than before we went into that season. That'd be a waste. And I don't like to waste anything. If I'm going to go through a hard time, a hard season, man, I want to be able to look back on that season and go, praise God, I grew. I learned a ton. I saw God work in my life and change things in me that I didn't think could be changed or needed to be changed. There's a redemptive part of suffering there then. It makes it worth it. So we should pray for their spiritual growth. Finally, let's look at the last three verses, verses 11 to 14. Paul says, Then being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Here's number four. Lastly, and Paul prays for Jesus' first praying strengthens our perseverance in Christ. Jesus' first praying strengthens our perseverance in Christ. I think Paul realized, and he knew certainly firsthand as he's sitting in prison, that living a life pleasing to the Lord is not only a high calling, it's a hard calling. Because this is a dark world. This is why I think Paul prays for their strength. He's not just referring to having enough strength to make it another day. Instead, in verse 11, which is being strengthened with all power. That's a key couple words. Being strengthened with all power. Instead, he's saying that the Lord is able to give us more than enough strength through his power to complete the race that he's given us. Again, commentator Doug Moo is a great help here. He rightly suggests the following paraphrase for verse 11. Strengthened by God with the greatest strength imaginable. Strengthened by God with the greatest strength imaginable. Well, how do we go about being thankful then when the race of the Christian life just seems too long? I wish it was a sprint instead of a marathon. Man, it's getting really long. Well, we can do that by remembering from which we've come. And I think that's why he wrote verses 13 and 14. In verses 13 and 14, the apostle describes us as being born citizens in Satan's kingdom, in bondage to our own sin. We were powerless, helpless, and hopeless under the evil dictator known as the adversary. Similar to what we've seen happen in other parts of the world throughout history, and we see it on the news, only a bigger, stronger ruler could liberate us. Enter King Jesus. 
Jesus overthrew the oppressive dictator named Satan so that he could transfer us as refugees into a new kingdom, his kingdom, in which we get to serve a benevolent king. I think one of several reasons Paul closes this section with these two verses is this. No matter how much the Lord might ask us to sacrifice here on earth, or how painful the persecution from the world might get, or how long the race might seem, Paul says we can always, always, always be thankful that nothing has changed in heaven. Our salvation is secure, and our best life will be in eternity forever. And what we experience here is temporary. So how should we pray for brothers and sisters in Christ and our small group or other believers we know in the community that maybe are struggling? We should pray for their strength. It's our final application. Pray for their strength. We should. We often think of God's glorious power being uh, demonstrated in miracles such as parting the Red Sea, destroying an enemy army, or raising the dead. However, I was thinking about this last night. And one of the things that we overlook often in God's great power is the mundane. We, we overlook the fact that in addition to these spectacular miracles that the Lord is known for, he has also supplied thousands of Christ followers over hundreds of centuries with the power they needed to fight the good fight and finish the race and to keep the faith. It doesn't make the headlines. It's not a big splash or spectacular. But there are thousands of Christ followers throughout the centuries that have finished the race because the Lord strengthened them when they had no strength left. And he can do that for you too. So the primary purpose of prayer is to get ourselves and others closer to Jesus. Closer to Jesus. Prime is an adjective that means to be first in authority, importance, rank, or significance. There's a question I'm going to ask you to prayerfully consider over the next few weeks. And that is, is Jesus prime in your life? Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, I want to just start by thanking you for your word and inspiring Paul to write things back in 60 to 62 AD in prison that could encourage us today as 21st century believers. Lord, I want to pray for those that are here today that have lost their hope. Would you please help them to either get it back again or to get the hope they should have had in the first place. The hope of being united for eternity with their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.
if they have put their hope in things that won't last, things that are temporal, things that are not you, anything other than you, please, Lord, would you reveal that by your spirit so they can change their focus to you. I want to pray, Lord, also for those that you have providentially placed in a certain job, certain neighborhood, maybe unemployed. That, Lord, you would use them to be a witness for Christ. That you would give them the grace and the boldness they need to articulate the gospel engage in conversations with unbelievers that are respectful and winsome but also truth filled and Lord I also want to pray for those that are going through a very difficult crucible right now that you would use this crucible this difficult season the pressure that they feel to bring them closer to you than they've ever been before Would you increase their knowledge of the scriptures? Would you heighten their sensitivity to your spirit? And would you work providentially in such a way that when they get on the other side of this wilderness, they can look back and say, I wouldn't have chosen it, but I'm glad the Lord did that. I'm glad the Lord took me through that because it brought me closer to Him. And finally, Lord, for those that are lacking strength, would you give them the strength that comes with all power from you? Would you carry them through this season where they're struggling to finish the race? Teach them dependence on you and Help them to understand their limitations, but Lord, please encourage and strengthen them. Finally, if there's anyone here that does not know your Son as their Lord and Savior, if they've not been reconciled to you, if they've not repented and placed their faith in Christ alone for their salvation, please, Lord, reveal Jesus to them and begin a new relationship with them today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.